Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Last Stop Waterfowl Outdoors. I'm your host, Jacob Robery. And on this week's show, guys, we have a lot of good content to share with you. A lot's been going on here in the state of Louisiana. And uh, we, we really wanted to break down what happened in the last week. We had a major hurricane here in the state of Louisiana. How is that going to affect our uh, upcoming teal season as uh, maybe even further down the road into big duck season? And uh, also something that we've been researching quite a bit, been going down a rabbit hole and looking at uh, different types of shop shells, guys. That's what the uh, topic of this episode is going to be about. We want to discuss with all the different brands of shot shells and shot shell technology out on the market uh, these days. How do we know exactly which one's the best for our gun? Um, the which you know, with our choke and our specific gun, what type of patterns are out there? And you may find something very interesting. I did a little experiment this week at home, me and Jackson, and uh, we broke apart some shot shells, guys, enter level all the way to the upper end, and you may be surprised what we found, so we'll kind of share some of that information with you as well. But guys, on this week's uh, episode, I have a guest on board with us. A few weeks ago, I brought him on with us on a show, and we discussed, uh, you know, forming for waterfowl, the, the modern-day practices of forming for waterfowl, and a lot of you gave some good feedback. Um, you enjoyed having this specific guest on the show as well as I did, and he's a good friend of mine. So, guys, we went ahead, we brought him back for this week's episode, and I'd like to welcome Mr. Robert Rogers back to the show. Robert, how's it going, man? Man, just clean up around here. Clean up, huh, buddy? Yeah, we got hit pretty hard. Yeah, man. I, you know, what? You know, Robert, tell, tell him a little bit about yourself and where you where you located for all of our listeners who may not have listened. To the previous episode we had you on, tell 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 our listeners a little bit about yourself, Robert. Well, my name is Robert Rogers. I'm 32 years old. I live in Northeast Louisiana in West Monroe, and uh, avid outdoorsman, and love to hunt and fish. Uh, I love chasing ducks until they make me sick at the stomach. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I mean, every day, every day I wake up, I think about it every day. Every day I go to bed thinking about it. Um, I think about that. That one group 20 years ago that fell in the timber. And then I think about that, that big old sprig pintail that, that that we killed in the rice field. So, I mean, it's it's everyday occurrence around here. Yeah. And Robert, you you know me and you got together through the great outdoors. Uh, you know, several years ago, I mentioned in the previous episode we got together that uh, you and I struck up a, a friendship and almost like a big brother, little brother type relationship. When we worked, uh, we met each other through uh, working retail at Cabela's here in Gonzales, Louisiana, and uh, I, I got blessed, and I, I was blessed enough to have you on board on my crew working with me. And uh, me and you quickly struck up a relationship, and and we, we kind of got a bond, me and you, together that, that, you know, I know we didn't talk a whole lot about last show, and you may not want to go into <laughs> everything, but we, we kind of got a bond that, that a lot of a lot of brothers uh, might not necessarily have in a different kind of way. Would you? Is that something you wanted to maybe share with the listeners this week? Absolutely. That's fine. Um, let's see. Uh December 8th of 2008 or what? No, November 8th of 2008. 
we were we had just gotten into a new lease together and I had been working a bunch of shutdowns uh, at the store uh, doing overnight inventory counting and decided to catch a couple hours of sleep and head out to the lease and side in our rifles and decide where we needed to put some stands and you know your your normal uh, your normal thing do a little scouting and Jacob met me about three o'clock that afternoon we put some stands together and uh, Jacob said man I got this ladder stand I want to put up and he said I really ain't ever dealt with a bunch of ladder stands I said, man I've been doing that for years I said we'll put it together lean it up a tree and I'll run up there and strap it down and that'll be it well I guess that uh that wasn't the whole story and uh, I had uh I had a seizure on top of the deer stand that caused me to fall and I had another one after I hit the ground and luckily uh luckily you were there to uh you pulled my tongue out of the back of my throat and I think you kept me from dying so, uh, I, I don't go to bed at night without saying a prayer for you and your family. Yeah. Well, man, I, you know, and then uh, guys, that's really, that's, that's our short version to keep it short, you know, of the story, but it's one of those things, guys, that it could happen at any time. Us as outdoorsmen, we have got to be extremely careful. And you, from the time you're, you're a young boy, hunting, growing up hunting with your grandpa and with your dad, you always hear them say, hey, be careful. Um, you know, this particular instance, guys, was was an event that could have changed, you know, both of our lives for the negative. But, and, and, you know, the way it turned out, it ended up being an extremely positive thing for us. And, and what I meant by us having a, a particular relationship that's unique is it, it, it made us even closer than we were before. We were already friends and hunting buddies. And, uh, you know, this made us, uh, you know, um, it created a lifelong bond, I would have to say, that I will look at Absolutely. and never forget for my entire life, you know. And, I, and and there was a lot of stuff that went on those next couple of years where you were trying to recover. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad and, and proud to see you bounce back the way you did. I have to be honest with you, you know. Um, you know, I, I thank the good Lord every – Every time I see you, I thank the good Lord for that opportunity to see you and your family. And, and I always make a joke. You know, Robert got married a couple of years later. And when I first met his wife, he was super excited. And his wife, he said, I want you to meet my, my fiance, Jesse. And literally, Robert, if you remember this, the first thing I told her when I met her, I, first time seeing her, I said, well, you I said, I'm the first man that ever kissed your husband. And I'll probably be the last man that ever kissed your husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, CP, CPR is a little bit different than kissing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, until something like that happens, you don't you don't realize how much that CPR training comes into uh, into play. But man, we you know, guys, we had to have Robert. It, it was a bad fall. Robert's a big guy, and I'm a big guy. And I and, and I remember asking him, "Hey, uh." You know, man, are you messing with me? Because we're trying to put these stands together, and you shaking up a storm. Can't get, we can't get the bolts through the holes. And I'm like, man, quit it. You know, you you messing with me? And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not messing with you. And uh, yeah, 
And we get you up on top of the I, I remember asking you specifically that day. I said, Hey, you want me to climb up to the top and I'll strap it up at the top? And you're like, No, no, I got it, I got it. So you you go scooting up there like a like a wildcat climbing up the ladder. And you get up there and I'm talking to you, looking ahead in the woods, you know, just looking at Mother Nature. And uh I asked you a question, and I remember this vividly. I asked you a question and you you were you had been talking to me and all of a sudden you just stopped talking to me. So I kind of look yeah. up and I see, I see, I see you just up there on the top of this ladder stand, leaning up against this tree, and this thing starts wobbling. And I, I thought to myself, he's coming down. There's no doubt about it. And next thing I know, you just, you just lean back and like fall, what, twenty feet down to the ground. And here I am trying to catch you, and I tried to catch you. You must have knocked me about five feet to the side of the tree, and you fell straight into a brush pile. I remember this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is something you just don't forget. And you probably don't remember all this, but I do. And uh, the next thing I know is I remember, I remember, I remember falling through the, I remember falling through the air thinking to myself, it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could imagine it, you did think that. But uh, yeah, man, you, I don't you, remember, I don't remember anything for three days later. I remember, I remember you told me. I remember that. you rolling me over and hollering my name, and then I don't remember nothing for three days later. Yeah, 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 man. It, it was something that, you know, I called. I remember trying to get you, and you weren't breathing, and, and we did what we had to do to get you breathing on the ground. And it was getting dark. This was in the afternoon, and um, yeah, you know, I, the first instinct I called my wife, and we're in the middle of nowhere. She has no clue exactly where we are. That's why it's very important. To let your loved ones kind of know where you are exactly, and um, you know, I, I hang up the phone and I call nine one one, and of course, don't have the greatest cell reception. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, "What are we gonna do?" Because we're nowhere close to anybody. And uh, the phone rings back, and it's nine one one who called who, who called me back on my phone, and they said, "Don't worry about it. We have GPS coordinates." And the next thing I know, Robert, is there's a there's a helicopter landing in the middle of this field where we were on our lease and, uh, and it, these people come running through this field cause it's real wet. They couldn't get a, uh, you know, an emergency ambulance back there. And, uh, <laughs> these, these paramedics run up to me and just absolutely throw me out the way to get to you, which thank God they did and, uh, rushed you off to Baton Rouge. But man, it, it, you know, honestly it, it worked out for the best. And, you know, it's an experience that brought us a lot. Didn't they put me in the back of somebody's truck to get to the ambulance at the road. Yeah, we had a friend of ours who uh, was in the lease with us, Joey. Joey DeVere, I think. Joey, was, uh, that's right, Joey DeVere. I, I remember seeing jo uh, Joey's big F-250 coming across the field, jump the ditch, and I saw that, that F-250 go airborne. I remember that. And uh, and it was getting dark, but, man, they uh, they got to you quick, and God bless the, the paramedics and the jobs that those guys do, those first responders. Because without it, you know, I don't know if you would have made it, man. I really, I really don't, you know. My sister told me they knew they there was a bunch of ambulance coming through the emergency room that night for some reason. But she said they knew exactly which one was mine because it was covered in mud. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, that, that uh, ambulance went off-road that night for sure, man. Yeah. But, but guys, as y'all can see, we have, we have a long-lasting relationship because of that experience we, we had together. And and we've been really good friends ever since then. And uh, I thank God for him and his wife every day, his family, his whole family is just a great, uh, great, great uh, group of people. But, you know, the thing about Robert that, like I said, that first drew me to him is he's a hell of an outdoorsman. 
he has always been a, a tremendous waterfowl hunter, which is why I like getting him on the show with us uh, because he could bring some knowledge to the show that I think could help a lot of our listeners out there. And uh, we have some some stories we could get into over time that would probably be pretty entertaining, guys. But uh, but Robert, you know, you told us a little bit about yourself, but fill, fill our listeners in that are listening this week. How, how did you get involved? in the outdoors as an adolescent. Tell, tell us about that. My grandfather, by the time I came along, he had quit hunting. But I would always snoop around his house and find these old single-barrel shotguns up in the closet. And I'd ask him about them, and he'd tell me, oh, I got that shotgun from, from Mr. J.W. down the road for $5, you know, back in the day. And every single gun he had had a story to it. And so I, I can remember as a child sitting on his knee on the front porch with a BB gun and listening to these stories that he had. And then after that, you know, it just, it, it always intrigued me. And, and I fished way more than I hunted when I was a kid. I didn't start getting into hunting seriously until I was about 14 years old. Um, my dad's one of my dad's best friends up here in Monroe. His name was Mr. Sperry Brown. They, I, when I turned 14 years old, he came and picked me up. Um, either Thanksgiving break or Christmas break. He said, get your shotgun get your waiters, you're going with me. And I went and I hunted with him for a solid week. And from the time that I was 14 years old to the time that he passed away about four years ago, I always had a seat in any blind that he was a part of. No questions asked. He never asked me for a dime. He never asked my dad for a dime. He All he asked for me was to be there when it was time to put decoys out, brush the blind, and pick up decoys. Wow. And I always had a place. I always had a seat. And he normally had three or four blinds going because he used to take his customers. And when I got to be 17, 18 years old, I was working at Cabela's with you at 18, 19 years old. And during fall break or whatever, I would come back up here, stay at the camp, and I would he would take a group, and I would guide a group. And he had probably 15 or 20 customers that he brought, you know, week after week after week, and I got to know all them guys. And that's how I really got into it. I learned everything I know about duck hunting basically from Mr. Sperry Brown. And uh, there's nothing I can do that would ever repay him besides find somebody and take them hunting. That's it, man. You know, and and how lucky as an adolescent, those of us who have been around it our whole lives, you know, we, uh, I think, Robert, a lot of us were exposed at a young age. And, and I think when you're exposed at a young age, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, 
you know, I, now my cousin used to take me, we used to go down and sit on this little slough and shoot wood ducks, but I didn't know nothing about big duck hunting. You know, I mean, yeah. when I was nine, 10 years old, I'd go sit on the ground and when some wood ducks swam by me, I shot them. You know, that was how I was honestly introduced to duck hunting right there. Yeah. As most of us are, most of us start out with duck hunting, you know, of some sort. That's but, right. I mean, that, that, my point is that, you know, I think it makes a difference when, when you start out at a young age like that, you never kind of forget those memories and you learn a lot of life lessons for certain, for sure from a, uh, somebody who's been doing it their whole lives. And, and really, like you said, Robert, the only way you can really repay a man like that is to, to pass that tradition on and keep it going with either your ch own children or if you don't have children, maybe bring a child with you and, and introduce them to the, to the sport. Because, you know, honestly, looking at the future, you know, there was years ago, they, they thought waterfowl hunting may be an extinct sport before, before it was all said and done. And, you know, if, if the groups like love them or hate them, but the groups like DU and, you know, Delta waterfowl and all these conservationist groups, if they wouldn't have formed and started what they started back when they, when they did start, you know, we might not be able to be waterfowl hunting today. And that's just the way it was with, with market hunting and all that type of stuff going on back at, back in the early part of the centuries, you know? Oh yeah. You listen to Mr. Bordelon, Mr. Dale and all the history that he has, uh, compiled over the years. Um, you know, he used to tell, he tells stories all the time about his daddy and his grandfather market hunting and how they would just fill up them old canoes with ducks because there was so many of them back then. I mean, I, I still think there's that many ducks. I just don't think they get down here anymore. Maybe so. Maybe so. You know, back then it was, it was, a, it was definitely a different time. You know, people, People look now and they say, well, why, man, we would have more ducks nowadays if, if they wouldn't have outlawed and they, you wouldn't have had all this, this, uh, you know, over hunting of, of these areas and the, and the waterfowl species. But, you know, you got to look at it from a different standpoint, too. Back in the, the Great Depression and all those times, way before me and you ever came along, people were hunting to put food on the table at that point. And, and oh, absolutely. They were they were just hunting to feed them themselves and their kids and their families. That's it. Or. or you know, if they were involved in market hunting, they were trying to earn money. That was a job, a way to bring some money, you know, to the family. So it was a different time in American history as far as the waterfowl hunter went back then. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a sport. It, you know, they, I'm sure they had their share of the sport hunting going on, but people were hunting to put food on the table, especially our ancestors down here in Louisiana. You know, you had the Creoles and the Cajuns and, and our ancestors. They, they were very, very poor people, you know, very poor people. So yeah. they, they were out there looking to put food on the table. Now, nowadays, I don't think that's so much the case. It, you know, it's become it's become definitely more of a sport type deal because, let's be honest, most people aren't, you know, hunting to put food on the table nowadays, you know? Correct, correct. So, you no, know, it's, it's definitely a sport now. You look at the – $20,000 side-by-sides that all these people are buying and using. I mean, it's just, it's a form of entertainment now. It is an expensive form of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta pay to play in waterfowl hunt nowadays uh, for the most part. And you know, and I say you have to, you don't have to, but, it, but it is expensive with the cost of the equipment, 
and getting started. I, you know, we get friends of ours, and you, you could attest to this. We, we'll get friends of ours that uh, want to get involved. They'll, we'll take them on a duck hunt, and they had never duck hunted before. And, man, you know, they'll get real excited. They're like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to sit in the stand and be quiet and I can't pee and I can't take a, 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 you know, number two and I can't do this and I can't do that. Like, like it may be with deer hunting and some of that other stuff. They are turned on to waterfowl hunting because, Hey, you could talk to your buddies. You can cut up and have oh, a yeah. good time. It's a, it's a camaraderie deal. It's Absolutely. a camaraderie deal. That's right. You know? So people are people who are possibly interested in getting into hunting and you may disagree with this, but, they they are they are turned on by that and waterfowl hunting is something that they could get into. But once they get into it, they the first comment you often hear a lot of times is, "Good God, I didn't realize how expensive it was to get started." Oh, you think about it. You think about a case of shells, a shotgun, some decoys, and a mojo. You're looking at three grand. Yeah. I yeah. mean, a case of shells is a cheap case of shells is a hundred dollars. A shotgun is $600 or more. Um, decoys, you can spend anywhere from $60 to $300. And then you got to have a place to hunt. If you don't, if you're not, if you're not familiar with it and not familiar with public land, you know, you, you got to get into a lease. And let's face it, leases up here are through the roof. I mean, you get you get a lease up here, a good lease up here, a blind, a twenty foot pit is going for thirteen to sixteen thousand dollars. Wow! Now you can sell seats in it and make a lot of that money back, but you know you got to have six or eight good buddies that are willing to fork out three grand a piece. Yeah, you got. I mean, when you're getting into that type of cost, you got to be able to split, split it up. And when you're doing that, you got to have some dedicated guys that are willing to hunt and want to invest that money. So you got to, you know, as you get older, it gets harder to coordinate times to get together and hunt, especially when families come right. to it and all that stuff. So it's really hard. As I'm getting older, I'm finding it way harder to find hunting partners than whenever I was your age or even younger than when we were coming up in our early 20s, you know? Yeah, yeah everybody, no doubt. Everybody had it. Nobody had families and you could – Hey, you want to go hunting more and you want to go the next day and the next day. And yeah, everybody was on board, but as you get older it, and those of you who listen to the show that are listening, you, you can agree to this. It sometimes gets a lot harder to, uh, to coordinate times with buddies and all that stuff and get everybody you together. Got baseball games. You got soccer games. You got basketball games. Exactly. Exactly. So when you look land, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, mean, it's an all day event. It is. It is. And when you're looking at getting into a blonde for 15 grand, 16 grand a year, you better be damn dedicated to it to be able to fork out that kind of money. Well, that I will say this about that. Around here, you know, it don't take I'm within I'm within a 40 minute drive of 10 or 15 different blinds, you know, that I have friends that are involved with. Um, you know, so, and the fact that the way that they do things up here, man, it's a lot of it is what, what I would call luxury hunting, you know, um, you ain't got to be out there at three 30 in the morning, waiting in the, waiting in the parking lot with your boat to get, to get on the refuge at 4am. 
Um, a lot of these guys, they meet up at 6.30, 6.45. They got a 10- or 15-minute four-wheeler ride. They get out. They walk, I don't know, three, 400 yards. They get into their nice pit. They turn the lights on. They plug the mojos up to the batteries that are wired, hardwired in. And at 6.51 shooting time, cut the lights off, get the guns loaded up, start shooting. Yeah, that, that's what I call rich boy hunting right there. That's right. That's that's luxury. <laughs> but but you know, I mean now, I mean that in the nicest way, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, trust me, it's fun. It, yeah. It's a lot of fun. You don't spend all day doing it. Now, when we go up, when Dad and I go up to Arkansas and we hunt, you know, White River Refuge, you know, you got to be, you got to be in the boat at four a.m. and you got to know where you're going. You're running in the dark by GPS, and you got to fight people off of your holes. Yep. And don't get me wrong. I mean, that's the the running is the fun part to me, and 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 working the birds into that timber. But I mean, at twelve o'clock when you get back to the camp, you're ready to pass out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you wore out, and I mean. You know, we've all seen these video clips of Arkansas, all you boys in Arkansas who may be listening to the show. Uh, you know, I don't know, Robert, you could you could probably answer this better than me because you've hunted Arkansas um, your whole life pretty much. But, uh, you know, you see all these video clips of these boats. There's 50, 60 boats all trying to take off at the launch, and they're running through these cuts in the timber with uh, 40 horsepower, you know, surface drives and souped up, uh, you know, Nissan outboards and this and that. And man, I can I see that, and I'm like, holy hell! As much as I love it, I, I don't think I'd want a part of that. You know? Did it? I tell you this, I did it, and I did it in college when I was a lot younger and dumber. But nowadays, man, it, I'll tootle and let all them people get out of the way. Go in there and buy, I'll sit. I'll sit. Uh, sit out in the channel. And let them shoot whatever they want to shoot. When they come out, I'll go in at nine o'clock, and I'll hunt from yeah. nine to noon, and and kill a bunch of mallards. I mean, that's I mean that's when they fly. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. You know, that's something I've been I've been you know like any other outdoorsman, especially waterfowl hunters. We we tend to watch a lot of content. We we with social media nowadays, you see a lot of stuff. And I was watching something about that this week, and they were talking about hunting Arkansas. And, this old time guy I was listening to, he he's been hunting his whole life in Arkansas in the timber, and he said he don't even show up till ten o'clock. And you always hear guys talk about hear stories. Oh, you know, we shouldn't show up early in the morning. But man, I got to be honest, it's so hard not to be there at daylight. I, you know, oh, no, it is. I'll tell you this: we got a spot just east of Monroe, um, south of Tallulah, called Yucatan Lake. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode that we did. Um, the very north end of it's nothing but a big button willow flat. And a lot of people like to go up there. We used to, a friend of mine used to have a camp down there. We would sit on the porch at daylight and drink coffee and make breakfast and hang out. And when we saw six or eight boats started coming out because they went in there and shot all them wood ducks out, and then they just thought that, eh. Ain't nothing flying today. We'd go in about 8.30, set up, and them ducks would come off of all the ag fields in that area, and they'd come 
sit on that lake in that ruck brush and that willow flat to loaf. After they got their bellies full, they could get out of the wind in them trees. And, man, we used to just absolutely slaughter them. Yeah. Yeah, it had to be a sight to see for sure. Because, I mean, it was it was stuff that, I mean, I used to hear stories about, uh, you know, back to Mr. Sperry, he had the first mojo in South Arkansas. He had the very, very first mojo. In fact, he was in on the patent before, before it sold to mojo. Really? Anyway, yeah, yeah. So he was telling me they used to run four groups out of one blind. He said they never picked up their call. They'd go in at daylight. They'd shoot shoot an eight-man limit, come out, go back in at 10, shoot another eight-man limit, go back after lunch around 1 o'clock and shoot an eight-man limit. And if they felt like it, they'd go back at 3. He said they never picked up their calls. He said when they put that mojo out there, they would they'd look like little ants in the sky, and all of a sudden they just show up. That's unbelievable. And it is. It, the stories that he used to tell me was unbelievable, and that's what I found that at Yucatan. We'd go hunt, and you'd see these birds. I mean, they'd be in the oxygen ozone layer, and you would just blow as hard as you could blow and as long as you could blow that duck call, and then they'd disappear. And then you just shut up and be quiet. And about 20 minutes later, you just all of a sudden you'd hear that old lonesome hen and get ready because they coming. They they'd fall in behind her, huh? No, I'm telling you, it was it was a sight to see. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's that's unbelievable. You know, I never did get to make a trip up there, but that's something that's on the bucket list. I definitely want to make a hunt up in that Arkansas timber, try to get up there at some point. I told Jackson, I said, you know, Jackson, when you get a little bit older, I said, we're in the years right now, we're trying to teach you and your brother how to do some, you know, some hunting etiquette and, and teach you how to hunt the right way. I said, but when y'all get a little bit older, I said, we're going we're gonna to start making a couple of them trips, you know, out of state like to Arkansas and, and do some of that stuff. And, you know, he told me, Robert, he looked at me and said, Dad, he said, why put off for tomorrow what you could do today? <laughs> <laughs> That boy's ready to go. I promise you, he, he he would he would let me take him out of school tomorrow and head to Arkansas and hunt for two weeks if we could. But hey, at that age, who wouldn't, huh? As a boy, absolutely. That's old, you know, and you just let me know when you want to do it, and we'll figure it out. I know, man. It's all about coordinating that time, and, and we will do it in time. I promise you that. But you know, kind of kind of switching gears back to equipment, we were talking about that. And that, that's really a topic that I wanted to talk about on this week's show. Man, I, I've been going down the rabbit hole, Robert. I've been doing a lot. I've, I've been getting scientific. Let me say that. I've been doing my research. I've been I've been researching shot shells, man, because, you know, the evolution of, 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 you know, coming from, you know, the traditional lead shot that you hunted back for years and generations up until the early 90s, and then, you know, the federal government stepping in and outlawing lead and, going over the steel shot and then, you know, all that transition that to where we are today has me, you know, it has me really fascinated. And I, and I started researching because, you know, as, as waterfowl hunters, we're, we're as good a group of guys as you could have out there, but then we could also be very, very, uh, you know, gun snobbish and, 
you know, shell snobbish, I'll call it, and all that, where, yeah. you know, oh, I don't use that, I don't shoot that because it's cheap, or, but, you know, I ain't buying that expensive stuff because it ain't no different than the cheap stuff. So I really started looking, man, lately and researching, okay, what I've been shooting over, you know, several years and trying new brands and this and that. And me and Jackson got together this past week, and we, we, we have a video up on YouTube that a lot of y'all can go check out, man, that we did this week. Uh, it's about a 25-minute video of us kind of breaking apart all, a bunch of different shot shells on the market today. And, uh, you know, we, you we had – chokes out any? What's that? Did you change your chokes out any? Well, I didn't shoot. We didn't shoot. We All we did was uh, – my question was, okay, you know, entry-level shells versus some of the higher-end shells. So – what we did, Robert, is we took six shells. And this was just six that I had on hand around the house. So we did a test with a uh, – or a dissect test, I guess you could say. Uh, we had a Monarch shell, which is uh, Academy's brand, that I, I bought some last year. It's a cheap entry-level brand. Uh, we did a Monarch, a, a Winchester Super X, a Kent Fast Steel, a Winchester Dry Lock, a Heavy Metal, my heavy shot and maybe one of them I'm missing. Oh, and a herders, uh, brand shell that that's put out by Cabela's and Bass Pro. And what, what, what the point of this was, was, you know, I've heard so many, you know, myths over the years of, Oh, Hey, uh, you know, like just for instance, like, like, you know, uh, Winchester super X when steel shot got mandated by the federal government and we had to stop shooting lead. I was a kid when that happened. I remember shooting lead and then, you know, when, when it hit 91, that was the first year that steel shot had got mandated. You couldn't hunt with lead anymore. Um, so Winchester Super X is one of those shells that's been on the market for years and years and years, you know, as far as steel goes. Because it was one of the first brands out there. That in Remington uh, was out there at the time. And that was pretty much the, the only brands out on the market. So for years and years and years, my dad shot, you know, Winchester Super X, and then I started shooting Winchester Super X. And that shell, I was always told as I got older, especially the last several years, I've had some of my good buddies that'll sit there and tell me, man, I don't shoot that. You know, I don't shoot that shit. That's cheap. Uh, you know, it ain't got no good materials in it. It's inconsistent. They're not even rounded the pellet, blah, 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 and all this and that. And, and honestly, I never could argue back with them because – I've personally never seen the inside of one, you know? Yeah. So what we did on this experiment, me and Jackson this week, and you'll see it up on the video if you go check it out on YouTube. It's on the Last Stop Waterfowl Outdoor TV. Um, we took those six brands of shells from the entry level to the higher end, which the highest end one we did was the Heavy Shot Heavy Metal, which is a very popular shell. And uh, we, we broke them open and dissected them. And looked at all the internals from the from the pellets, uh, the size of the pellets to the wads, what they look like, uh, to the the brass on the shell, the, the outer plastic casing, and the gunpowder inside of them. And we 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 dissected them, put them on a plate, and kind of showed everybody the differences between the entry level, which I think the cheapest one we looked at was the Monarch from from uh, the Academy. That's their brand that they sell under. And all the way up to the heavy metal. And you will be shocked at what we found by that, man. Because what we thought or what some people think necessarily is the cheapest brand and not worth a shit on the market actually had better consistency 
than some of the high-end stuff that we looked at. And it was very interesting to see. So, you know, my question, and I want to pick your brain on the whole ammunition thing, you know, as far as shot shells go. What, whenever you go to the store, Robert, or during the, the season to buy shells, what goes into Robert Rogers' buying decision for a shell, for his gun, for his waterfowl season? Hello? Robert, you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you back, man. I lost you for a second. Oh, okay. Uh, Did you hear me first? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, go ahead, bud. The first thing that I think about is, number one, where am I hunting? And the, the second thing that I think of is how long are the shots that I'm going to be taking? So if I'm in the timber, I'm, I'm not looking for a really tight pattern. I'm looking for a wide pattern, like a number six or a number five, if I can find it. Um, if I'm hunting in the fields and rice fields and bean fields, I'm shooting anywhere from a number four to a number two. And the reason is that number two, with my extra full choke, I shoot a Carlson extra full choke. And the number two is going to pattern a lot better at 50 yards than it is at than a number four at 50 yards. It's going to throw a tighter pattern, and it, it's going to it's going to hit with the most power it can. Okay. So if I'm in, if I'm in the, if I'm like I said, if I'm in the timber, I want a big wide pattern because they're up close. I don't want to tear up my bird, you know. I, I want yeah. it to kill them. I don't want to pick them up and them not have a breast in them. Correct, correct, correct. You know. And, yeah, um, and I understand that. I mean, you know, that that's that's the great debate because you'll have other hunters that that you know have other theories on it, and you know. The, the one thing, the one thing is whenever I think what a lot of guys that truly waterfowl hunt a lot right now, Robert, and, and I want to get your take on this, you know, you, you were, you were too young to remember the days of shooting lead, you know, back then, yeah. but yeah. lead had that knockdown power. It, it was the densest shot that you could, that you could, you know, go after waterfowl with for sure. It had the knockdown power. Today's you could steel, also get it in a heavier, you could get it in a heavier uh, ounce than you could, than you can steal now. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, up in in steel, you can only get up to, I think, an ounce and a quarter. Okay, that sounds about right. And back then, you could get lead. If if I remember correctly, you I've seen some older boxes that were like bigger than that. Gotcha. So the lead was heavier. It didn't fly as fast, but it was heavier. So when it hit a bird at 50, 60 yards, it, it, it went through them. It didn't just bounce off of them. Gotcha. Yeah, when you're looking at the, the uh, you know, the chart as far as density goes with shot building materials, you know, lead, lead is definitely the densest that you got out there. And the second thing that you see now uh, in shot shells that's, that's become – you know, I, I'm not going to say become real popular because it's so expensive, but you got bismuth that's second. And then, you know, then you now you're starting to see these companies like 
uh, heavy shot and, uh, you know, um, federal that's out there on the market with Black Cloud TSS. Now you're seeing tungsten. And as fishermen, yeah. we know tungsten really well from fishing with tungsten for years. But now you're starting to see it carry over into the the waterfowl hunting and into uh, hunters, you know, repertoires now as far as uh, being built into these shot shells. But as it is the- with fishing, it's so expensive, you know. As far as knockdown power over the last, say, 10, 15 years, 10 years, bismuth has bismuth came out with the first tungsten shell. And then you saw, now you're seeing Kent jump into it. You're seeing uh, Heavy you Shot talk, jump into you're, it. You're talking about a brand that was called Bismuth? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. I got yes. you. Yeah, because bismuth is a is a different material. For the, all of you who are listening out there, it's a different material altogether. It's it's the closest thing that they say you could get to lead um, as far as density goes. But the problem over the years with bismuth, bismuth, excuse me, has been the uh, the brittleness of it. You know, and that's been a big issue. It it tends to break when it hits bones. It tends to break a lot easier than that of steel or lead or anything else you know that that's out there in a shot pellet right now so you are starting to see now the bismuth a lot of companies that are still putting out bismuth right now that are offering it they're starting to coat it with other materials robert so you're seeing like copper plated bismuth or you know other materials tin you tin's another one that they're using to uh cover you know to use as a covering in order to help solidify it or they're putting tin and bismuth together in a shot pellet. So there's really some stuff that I've been learning that's real interesting that I wasn't aware of. But the price with you know the price point with bismuth has been what's kept most people from you know buying it because it's so expensive. You look at a box of bismuth, it'll be 10 shells for $37 if you go to a big box retail store. And the average guy can't afford that, you know? No, no, no. I, we've been very lucky up here and I'll say this, uh, Simmons, Jeff Simmons, who owns Simmons Sporting Goods up here in Bastrop, he is the number one seller of federal premium ammunition. And he gets them by the 18-wheeler load, and he's, a, he's able to sell them at a very good price. I can get a box of ounce and a quarter, or a case, let me rephrase that. I can get a, that's what, uh... 10 boxes, I can get a case of ounce and a quarter uh, number fours or number threes for $99.99 for 100 bucks. And that's what I've been shooting for the longest time. They shoot really clean. I don't have to break my gun down and, and clean it every few hunts. Um, I, I've been shooting federal for years now, and uh, I will say this, they don't have the knockdown power at 45, 50 yards like heavy metal or heavy shot. Heavy shot is probably the best the best shell on the market right now, in my opinion. Yeah, there, there's there's so many brands that are coming to the market now. You got, you know, and he- I agree, heavy is probably one of the most commonly talked about in the duck blind over the last I'd say 10 years, maybe. Uh, yeah, just say I just five can't, 10 years, you know. 
I can't shell out 250 bucks for a case of shells that uh, it's just too much money. Well, and yeah, most guys aren't going to spend that. You know, they just, it's, it, it is expensive. But look, let's be honest. Most of us who public waterfowl hunt, or even if you have a lease, with the amount of ducks that we've seen over the last several years, you could probably go two or three seasons on a case of shells, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it could be, you know, worth it to maybe splurge and go with that. That way, you know, or, you know, you at least you think, and according to everything we've been told through advertising, and it, nowadays advertising is so good for all the brands. It's it's something, you know, that, that, that gets a lot of us. And that's, you know, it's one of those things that we'll go buy it because we saw it on TV and we believe all the hype on it. But we've never really actually tested it out, or you know, how many how many people you know get get a shot shot shell and tell you it's the best shot shell in the market, and they don't even go patting their gun in or something with it, you know? I'll tell you, I've over the last couple of years, I've I've really wanted to uh, send my gun off, and I'm this is no pitch for this one guy, but uh, I've done a lot of research on a, a gentleman by the name of Rob Roberts. He's out of Arkansas, and I, I've wanted to mail my gun to him. I, I want to mail two guns to him. Um, what he'll do is he'll go in to your shotgun, and, and he'll do some trigger work on it, which everybody knows that just like a rifle, you make that trigger a little lighter, and it goes off when you're not ready for it to, you know? So you're a lot more accurate with it. Yeah. And – He'll go in and he'll he'll do a bunch of stuff and then he'll pattern. You tell him what few shells that you like and he'll pattern your gun to those shells and then he'll build you two custom chokes. You tell him what kind of way you're hunting. Like if you got a if you hunt in the timber and in the rice fields, he'll give you two different chokes and he'll name them T1 and T2 and you know you know which one goes where. And it's just, it's amazing what people can do with a shotgun. You know, we've got, you got people building custom rifles all over the place now for long distance shooting or whatever. Now people are doing it for shotguns. That, yeah. That, you know, I've heard about that, but that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's almost like it, it's custom fitting, just like you would if you bought a set, set of golf clubs or something, you know, you want to get that's a custom exactly fit right. the best performance. And that's what it that's what it says. Rob Roberts custom chokes. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to look into him and just check it out. I'd be interested in, in kind of picking his brain and seeing what you know what he thinks about all of it nowadays. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, like I said, I, I when I did this uh, experiment this week with Jackson, we were just piddling around, and we we really I, I think. You guys, I invite you to go check it out. Like I mentioned, it is on our YouTube channel. It's a 25-minute video we posted up on our page, on our channel. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool. I'll let you guys see for yourself what we found. And, like, you may be surprised by some of the internals of these shot shells, uh, all the way from your entry-level ones to your uh, your high-end ones. But ultimately, I mean, you got to go out. you Whatever shot shell you decide on, you got to go out pattern it, guys. Make sure you, you put it on paper because, look, you know, going back to the whole lead versus bismuth versus tungsten and all that, that I remember I remember when, when Steele had got mandated, you know, it was the law for us to shoot 
And, and to this day, Robert, I mean, you, you could probably vouch for this as a waterfowl hunter as much as you've been. Sometimes when you do a water swat on the water, it just seems like those steel pellets are just kind of all over, like getting thrown all over the place. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. It, and and that's – I will say this. Uh, it took me three different chokes to figure it out. I went through three different – I went through uh, um, a kicks. I went through uh, – Flambeau was making a choke for a while. And now I have this Carlson choke. And I shot them in three different guns, all three of them. And I finally got the Carlson choke works best with my Stoker. Okay. For some reason, that choke is married to that gun, and, and it, it it throws the best pattern that I that I can find. And that's what I duck hunt with is my Stoker. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know what's what's ironic with that is you know Stoker. That's all part of the Benelli family and uh and yep. Franke and and you shooting a Stoger with a Carlson choke and I kind of did the same thing over the last several years. I, I tried different chokes with uh you know different ones Carlson and other ones. When we worked for Cabela's, I tried some that were developed by you know Pattern Master and some of these other brands. And uh, I shoot a Franke uh, intensity is what I shoot. And uh, I never mind. I've, after all the testing I did on mine, I, I honed in on a uh, on a pattern master mine that I shoot, and it seems to be the best pattern for my gun. You know, and even though yeah. a Stoger and a Franke is made by the same company, that's two different chokes for two different guns, and we both have different opinions for our own guns. You know, so that just goes yeah. to show you right there, you got to get out there and shoot them. Well, I got a Benelli Nova too that I shot for years and years and years. And I had a kicks high flyer in it. And I only, I only took that choke on two hunts and then I gave it away. I, I couldn't stand it. Um, it was taken, it, it would shoot at, at 20 yards. It was great. At, at 20 yards. It was, it was great. But at 50 yards or 40 yards where out in the rice fields, most of your shots are between 35 and 50. Yeah, you're shooting a lot of passing shots. Yeah, yeah. And so I could see the wad fly out of my gun and the pellets wouldn't even get – it's like the pellets wouldn't come out of the wad for some reason. I don't know what the deal was. I, I didn't like it. Yeah. I'm laughing because I remember years ago when Black Cloud first came out. Uh, man, those guys, Phil Robertson and all our guys there, based there in Louisiana, they were they were with Federal Ammunition at the time. And, uh, boy, they are great marketers because that's right before the big Duck Dynasty craze hit, I guess, all that stuff. And they, they over the years, you know, the Duck Commander guys have, have shot – different firearms and this and that. But at the time, they were shooting Benelli guns with Black Cloud. That was the newest black thing. Black Cloud. had to have a Black Cloud. had to have a Black Cloud, man. It had the flight stopper. It had this little ring around the pellets. And, I, and I'm and i watching these commercials thinking to myself, I'm going to buy that. That's the best thing I've ever seen, and that thing's going to knock some ducks down. Well, I go out like a fool and buy, buy a damn half case of Black Cloud. Because at the time we had got it at Cabela's and I could get it a good deal, 
So I go out, I buy half a case of Black Cloud, and uh, I start shooting this crap on a hunt. Don't pattern it like a fool. Take it out on a duck hunt because I'm in the middle of duck season at this point. And I get out there, and I couldn't hit the side of a freaking born with it. And, man, I kept telling my buddies, this stuff sucks. I can't hit it. Then I started reading the box, and it says it wasn't designed to shoot with uh, extended chokes that had vented, vented holes in the chokes, you know, ports in the chokes. Yeah. And here I am, like a dumbass, never even took the time to read, hey, what is designed for? And I'm out there trying to shoot it, and I'm, I'm, I'm bitching and cussing because I can't hit the side of a born with it. So I, I did exactly what I'm telling you guys that are listening to the show now not to do. If you go to a new shot shell, make sure you go pattern it before hunting season starts and make sure it's, it, it's got a good pattern for your gun that you shoot, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like a dumbass, but hey, they got me. They sold me, man. I ended up having to give away the, the rest of that case of shells. I remember that. So the black, I never, I never got in on the black clouds because we cut one open one time and all the, not all of them, but a lot of the rings that were supposed to be put on the, the actual shot itself. Yeah. The flight stopper. Got, yeah. The flight stopper. They were all chipped and broke off and all this other stuff. And I was like, <laughs> eh, I'll just, I'll just stick with my federal blue box and uh, keep on going down the road. Well, you know, you mentioned the federal blue box, and uh, you know that federal blue box, you could get it for what a hundred dollars a case, I think. Yep. Yeah, it's it's been a hundred dollars a case since that stuff come out that I could remember. I remember, I remember in college at Bowie Outfitters and here in Baton Rouge, I was working, and we'd get that stuff like you said by the truckload. And every year, yep. Bowie's would run a special where you could buy a case of it. I think it was seventy nine or eighty nine dollars when it was on sale, and uh. You know, believe it or not, I haven't tested that shot in a long time. You know, the last time I shot that specific shell, Robert, it was out of a Remington 870, and, and it always shot well out of that gun for me. But when, once I moved got a up, case of them here, if you want them, was that? <laughs> so I got a case of them sitting in my closet. I bought I bought two cases last year, and <laughs> I only shot I only shot about seven boxes out of one of them. Well, there you go. That's what I say. A case of shells now. The way it's been, it'll last us at least two seasons most of the time, especially especially uh, as public waterfowl hunters. You know, you could uh, a case of shells sometimes will last you two years. I will but, uh, say this: if you're public waterfowl hunting, spend your money on the shot on the shells because, and the reason I say this, a lot of places have a shell restriction, especially in Arkansas. They have okay. a fifteen, like a fifteen shell limit, or or a a 20 shell limit or a lot of them are 15 shells. Okay. So explain that because that's not something we have here. So explain, explain what that is. It's a shell limit. You can only bring 15 shells with you. Really? Um, yeah. So it's, it's supposed to prevent people from sky busting. Okay. It's supposed to, to make you work your ducks more, get them in the hole and kill them dead in the hole. Number one, it's supposed to, Reduce cripples, and number two is keep people from, you know, you've seen this just as much as I have. You get set up in the morning, and somebody comes in last minute and sets up fifty yards from you. Yep, definitely. We've yep. all been seeing that as as public land hunters for sure. That's right. So then you get into a call war, and all of a sudden you get a bunch of ducks working, and 
they like your hole better than the other guy's hole, and he just decides to shoot and 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 blow your birds out. Gotcha. Because he's mad. Yep. So I actually like that, man. I kind of like that idea. I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about it, and, and I, I I see the point behind it, and it's it kind of addresses all the common nagging issues as public land waterfowl hunters that we encounter. Yeah. Kind of addresses all that. Um, it does. It keeps people from bringing two boxes in the timber. Yeah. I, I tell you, the, the one thing that I like about it the most probably is that, you know, their goal is to eliminate cripples. You know, I read a statistic. I, I, as I've been researching all this shot shell, you know, technology and stuff over the last couple of weeks, uh, they estimate every year wildlife and fishers or national wildlife and game Actually, when they set limits every year, they have to factor in and accommodate for how many cripples they estimate have, have died throughout the season. And do you have any clue in a season what they estimate on average cripples that, that, or, or that die from being shot and, uh, you know, fly away and then eventually die? Do you have any, num- any idea what number that might be? Uh, I would have to think it would be – over a couple hundred thousand. Three million. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, that's a lot of birds. Three million birds is what they estimate are dying each year from being crippled. That, yeah. That's that's an astounding number. When I heard that, that statistic, I, I was like, wow, three million birds. As, as, you know, we talk about numbers decreasing every year and getting less, and we're here shooting still shot 99% of us probably as a waterfowl population. And 3 million birds are being estimated as dying from being crippled. So, so you know, you start looking at why they outlaw lead. Well, lead was, you know, something that was toxic and, you know, it could pollute the waterways and so on and so forth. My question is, is what's happening to all the plastic from the wads that are being dispersed into the water? as a waterfowl hunter. You ever thought about that? Well, yeah, I would say probably 20 years ago it would be something to worry about, but now everything's biodegradable. Are the wads biodegradable or are they plastic? Well, I think they're biodegradable now. They may be. That's that's a good question. May have to look that up. For all of us listening, if anybody knows, you know, on that and you more into it, then we are a bigger geek when it comes to this than we are. Then hell, comment, leave us a comment. Let us know yeah. on our social media page, on our Facebook page. We'd love to know because I'm going to research that. Because what my thinking is, okay, all these plastic wads and plastic shot shells that you see and brass that that we're shooting, and you know, of course, we preach, hey, pick up your shot casings, all that type of stuff. And as hunters, I do try to do that. I make an effort every year to try to do that when I see them around me. But how many times you get caught up in the moment and you don't do that? And how many people are guilty of that? We all are, you know? So we bought, we went and bought a bunch of those magnet sticks. That's a good idea. Very good idea. And we keep them in the blinds with us. So after every hunt, we get two or three people with magnet sticks go around and we, we pick up all the shells and we put them in a five gallon bucket in the blind. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good, good point to uh, to make and to share with our listeners there because that's something I didn't even know was a, 
was out there that we could that we could keep in the boat, but that would be a great idea. Yeah, Primos makes a uh, a magnet stick. That that would be, and brass and all that sticks to it. Yep. So I guess the primers on the shells and stuff do. Yeah, I mean the brass and everything sticks to it. Yeah, it's called yeah. a magnet stick. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, something else just to change gears as we're getting close to wrapping up here for this week's episode, Robert, I, it, we could not go this week without talking about uh, about Louisiana, our state, and how we were affected over the last week um, by Hurricane Laura that, that hit the Gulf Coast. And I mentioned earlier in the episode when we opened up that all our thoughts and prayers go out to all the families that were, you know, devastated by this hurricane. This was one of the largest hurricanes to ever hit Louisiana and the Gulf Coast, if not the largest. Um, I know they're still collecting information with that. But when this storm, particular storm hit, Robert, we were looking at a Category 4 with winds of 133 miles an hour that came into uh, Cameron Parish and all that at the western portion of uh, Louisiana and the borderline of Texas, man. And, you know, I know, I know you guys up in Monroe were affected by it. Uh, Toledo Bend, uh, you know, wasn't just the, the, the Gulf Coast this time, but wasn't just the lower states below I-10. This this devastating storm whipped through and hooked hooked up northward and went west. I mean, went east towards y'all in Monroe and affected y'all. So hey. tell, tell everybody kind of what y'all experienced up there and what it's looking like in, in Monroe, guys. Well, actually, my grandparents left Lake Charles on Tuesday night and came up here. And uh, they're they're from a little town just north of Lake Charles, about 45 miles, called Maryville, um, which is just south of – in between um, De Quincey and DeRitter. And when it got north of Leesville, north of, north of Toledo Bend, north of Leesville, it shifted east. And we got here in Monroe, West Monroe, we got the northeast side of the eye. The eye actually went over Ruston. And in DeRitter, they experienced 120 to 130 mile an hour winds. That's considered a category four. When it got to Ruston, we had a 115 to 100 and 10 mile an hour winds. It was still a category two when it hit up here. And that and that was the next day, wasn't it? Uh it made landfall. Well, I think Wednesday it was one it, it made landfall at 1 a.m. in the morning. Okay, so it made landfall Thursday morning. It was here by Thursday at two o'clock. Yep, that's that's incredible. That's incredible. Now, how, how, I mean, you may not even have an idea of this yet, but based off of the damage, I know you've been helping out a bunch of friends and stuff like that over the last few days. Uh, how do you think that it's going to, in your area, in Monroe, West Monroe, all that area, Ruston, waterfowl for the season coming up. Teal season opens up a week or two from now. We're looking into 12. I'll tell you this. I went and put a blind out Sunday. And I saw three or four wads of about 50 strong teal. So I think we got lucky and it stayed far enough east 
or excuse me, far enough west to not affect a lot of our agriculture, which is just east of Monroe. Um, I'm still getting reports from a bunch of people around town that they got a bunch of birds sitting on their farm. Um, now the dove season that opens up this Saturday, I think, I think doves are going to be a little hard pressed. I, I saw a bunch of doves Sunday, but I didn't, I went riding around this evening. I didn't see a lot this evening. Um, I actually think we're going to end up being lucky. And, you know, when Gustav came through down in Baton Rouge, was a week before dove season and it blew every dove in South Louisiana out of the state completely. Um, I think this one actually was far enough West that all of our birds in the Mississippi Delta are going to stay where they're at. That'd be great. That would be great for you guys up there. Cause you know, I, I was really concerned about my, all our, our listeners in the northern portion of the state, how it was going to affect, you know, them. And nobody nobody knows right now in, in, in the immediate, you know, future what it's going to do. Um, you know, like you mentioned, hey, I, I'd rather sacrifice maybe teal season and dove season in order to be able to have a little bit of time and, you know, allow big the big ducks to migrate down here and be able to hold the big ducks for, uh, for our, our opener in November. You know, and I think – a lot of guys would definitely sacrifice till season if they had to for 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 ducks to be here come November, you know? Absolutely. Now, the western portion of our state, Robert, is going to be – I have a feeling you guys that in the west, you know, um, you know, it's going to be – it's going to be a, probably a tough a tough year for yeah. for hunting this year, you know, because you get you get a storm of that, that size and that – amount yeah, of that power it, it leveled some stuff you know yeah and those of, yeah. those of you who are not from louisiana you know but you know you may never have we have listeners robert that are, that are from out of state i got some some guys that come in and touch base with us they from you know other portions of the united states some are north some i have some, we have some listeners in new york that have messages to talk to us and they don't necessarily ever experience the, a hurricane like we do in the gulf of mexico but guys, yeah. just to give you an idea of what it's like down here, in uh, in, in from this storm, there are people who have lost everything, and when I mean everything, I mean everything, starting from the ground just, up. Just in Washtenaw Parish alone, which is Monroe, West Monroe, just Monroe and West Monroe, Washtenaw Parish, we had seventy thousand people out of power. Thursday night. Wow. Now we've got most of it back on. We probably, I would still say we probably have about 10,000 people out of power. Still They're still out of power. Yes. Wow. That, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a shame uh, with the technology we got nowadays, but you look, I promise you it's not because there's not crews that are trying to help get these people back on. No, uh, no, not at all. We, we got, I, I've probably seen 500 power trucks around here. Yeah. And what happened to us, it, it, our main power station got hit hard here. That's why they gotcha. had to repair that before they could repair everything else. Correct. Correct. So and look, we still got, I, I mean, to, outer, 
the outer portions of our parish, more rural portions of our parish still have trees on power lines and stuff like that. I mean, they're still working to get trees off of power lines. Yeah. It, it's, it's something, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, when in 2016, we flooded here, we had the big flood down in, uh, Southeast Louisiana. And, uh, you know, I thought, I thought we had it bad. My family, we, we went through a situation where our home flooded, but it's nothing in the grand scheme of what our, our neighbors in, you know, North Louisiana and, you know, Southwest Louisiana are experiencing right now from Hurricane Laura. And look, I want to, I want to say this, you know, as just as a Louisiana resident, so any, any, Body who has come down to our state to help contribute and help out with this cause. Uh, the all the all the first responders, all the uh, the linemen from the energy companies and the power companies that are out there busting your humps. I, I go to work every day on the interstate to head to work, and I have seen nothing. Every morning since last since the storm hit last week, I have seen uh, you know energy trucks and you know power trucks and. Uh, coming and just grows our military, our military. I've seen our military on the move, everybody heading towards areas that have been affected by this storm. And I want to personally thank you as a Louisiana resident. On behalf of all the residents in our state, we want to, we want to thank you for your hard work. We want to tell you that we love you and that we, uh, we appreciate everything that you guys are doing, being away from your families. A lot of you are from out of state. A lot of guys are from out of state coming in to help. And uh, it really shows, Robert, the, uh, you know, with all this, the, the BS going on in the world that the media focuses on, there's a lot more good than bad, in my opinion, still. You know, that goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got people from Georgia here that we've talked to, and they just – they said, we, we just – we saw it coming. We came to help. Yep. When push so, comes to shove, we, we, we can't take say care we're sorry. We can't we can't say thank you enough to all those people who have you know dedicated their life to helping others. Number one, and, and all the people that are here helping helping my community, helping helping Southwest Louisiana. That's I mean I got family down there too. You know helping their community. Um, you know, you got all these mission groups are just traveling around, feeding people, giving out water, giving out ice. Um, our national guard set up a deal here, handing out two bags of water. I mean, two bags of ice, a case of water and six MREs. And you could drive through as many times as you want. Yeah, that's awesome. And look, so, folks, you know, we, we're here to help as well. If anybody who's listening to the show this week, is interested in helping out in any way or form, whether it's donating food, it's water, goods, money, um, whatever it is, whatever it is, clothing, baby formula, any of that stuff. If anybody is interested that is a fellow outdoorsman that wants to contribute and help out in some kind of way, um, feel free to contact me, um, Jacob, at Last Stop Waterfowl at gmail.com or you could contact me on our social media page on Facebook. Um, you can hit me up through Instagram if you need to. 
And if you're willing to help and want to help out in any way or form, I will make sure that I put you in contact with somebody here locally in my community. Um, there's several churches that are, uh, you know, gathering goods to, to bring there, have truckloads going every day pretty much to the affected areas. Um, I can make sure that I put you in contact with somebody who's reputable, who we could trust, and who's willing to, uh, to help these people out and make sure that your donations go to a good area. So I invite you to contact me, and I'll put you in contact with somebody locally here in my community that, that could help you out. Um, yeah, Jacob, but, let me know on that because I got friends with Cajun Navy in Lake Charles right now. Yep, that's a big part of the Cajun Navy. You hear a lot of those guys. that They, they who I'm talking about, thank you to those guys, everybody who's a part of it, man. And uh, But, yeah, contact me. I'll put you in touch with – with somebody uh, or we'll get together me and you Robert we could get them in touch with people uh, that 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 could make sure it goes to a good cause that's for sure absolutely absolutely so, well Robert man it's been another pleasure uh, you becoming a show regular now we had a lot of the, the feedback last time guys said they enjoyed the show we had quite a bit of screams on the last show me and you did together so uh, we having a lot of fun doing it but I want to thank you man for being on the show again tonight with us Oh, man, just uh, I enjoy being on here. I enjoy talking about all this stuff, man. It's, it's my passion. So It is. It is. And, guys, I also I, I have to thank our sponsors that, that host the show, Anchor.fm, guys. If you're thinking about doing what we did and starting your own pod, podcast, Anchor.fm is the place to be. Guys, check out Anchor FM. It's, I'll guarantee you it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Um, pot, they'll handle everything for you from the, the distribution of your podcast and uh, they'll make sure it gets out there on all the major streaming platforms. As many of you know, you can check out our show, Last Stop Waterfowl Outdoors, on all your favorite podcast uh, platforms such as Anchor.fm. We're out there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, Pocket Cast, and many, many others, guys. And another sponsor that we want to talk about that we uh, we partnered up with is a company that I'm a proud to be a part of, guys. I have to admit, I've been following them on Instagram for quite a while, um, and we've been talking back and forth, me and the, one of the owners of the company. And uh, we, we partnered up, and we got together, guys, and we would like to welcome Beaver Creek Game Calls as one of our show sponsors for Last Stop Waterfowl Outdoors. If you're looking for duck, goose, deer, or turkey custom calls, guys, check out Beaver Creek Game Calls. You can check them out on the web at www.beavercreekgamecalls.com. Uh, Beaver Creek Game Calls has you covered no matter what you want in a custom call. Proudly made in the USA, 100% made in the USA, guys. They are hand-turned calls. One, I ordered two brand-new waterfowl calls this week. And uh, I'm waiting on them to show up in the mail, so I'm pretty excited about it. Great, great group of guys that run that company. And uh, all their calls are handcrafted and built to the highest standard, guys. So check them out on the web. That's Beaver Creek Game Calls. Um, they're also on social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, pretty much all the major platforms. Uh, we'd love to welcome them and thank them for having uh, us and being a part of our show here on Last Stop Waterfowl Outdoors. And once again, that's Beaver Creek Game Calls. Thank you, guys. We're glad to be part of the team. 
Well, guys, until next week, that's all we got. We'll talk again next week. We'll see what else comes up. And if you guys have some topics you'd like us to discuss, leave some comments on our social media page. We'd be glad to bring it up on the show. But, Robert, for me and Robert, until next time, we'll see you guys in the outdoors. Everybody have a good week.